It's Tom Bilyeu here. And if you are addicted to the relentless pursuit of greatness, then I've got something special for you guys. The Motivation Daily Podcast by Motiversity. It's your daily fix of motivation, inspiration, and wisdom featuring the best speeches and speakers on the planet. We cover it all. Life, business, relationships, discipline, purpose, mental health, sports, studying, focus, you name it. With exclusive speeches from heavy hitters like Coach Payne, Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. What's up, guys? I'm so excited to have Tony Robbins join us today. His name is legendary. His books, his programs have been impacting millions of people around the world for decades, and I am very much one of those people. Today, he's dropping nuggets of wisdom on how his Date with Destiny program has actually cured people from depression and why you must have a compelling future pulling you forward to make your biggest transformation. Get ready for a power-packed hour that will change your life. I hope you guys enjoy listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. I really did have a breakthrough that I've mentioned to my wife a dozen times at this point. If you do, please leave a review on the podcast. It really is the best way to support us so that we can help people just like you reach your potential and truly become legendary. I'm Tom Bilyeu, and welcome to Impact Theory. Tony Robbins, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back, brother. Dude, very excited. So you recently did a study with Stanford University that shows that your Date with Destiny program is more effective at impacting positively depression than traditional um, medications and things like that. Why is it so effective? What tactics are you giving people that is so transformative? I think it's 50% higher uh, positive emotion and 70% less negative emotion which is pretty insane. It's, it's actually even better than that. I got approached by Stanford during COVID because, you know, I adapted. I wanted to try and help people. And all of a sudden, you know, 15,000 person stadiums, they wouldn't let you have 10 p 100 people in the stadium. It was just ridiculous. And so I eventually created this giant uh, 20 foot high, 50 feet wide, 25,000 square foot studio. And we started delivering to people all over the world. And so they had some people go through Date With Destiny, two of which I think were clinically depressed. And they came back with none of the symptoms. And they said, you know what? This is unbelievable. This is six days. What data do you have on this? And I said, well, you know, I got zillions and zillions of you know testimonials and stories, but no one's ever studied it. So they said, listen, we think this could be incredible. And they explained to me that right now, if you go across the meta studies on depression, which is out of control since COVID, obviously, it's not COVID as much as it was the shutdowns and the fear. And then now the fear of people, you know, a lot of people are afraid we're going to all die within 12 years, which, of course, is not true in terms of the environment. But all of this fear has put people in a place where there's no compelling future. And that's one of the things that we all need. We can all deal with the difficult today if we have a compelling tomorrow. But anyway, they decided, they said, look, you know, right now, the meta studies show that across all the treatments, both a combination of therapy and drugs, the only about 40% of people get better. And of that 40%, 60% don't get better. Uh, the average improvement is 50%. So they're half as depressed as they were. Some people 100% cure, very few though, unfortunately. And they, I said, well, that's not much better than, you know, a placebo. And they said, we agree. And now I don't know if you've seen the cover of Newsweek talked about SSRIs. You know, they do not uh, change with depression. And we're still giving people these drugs. It's crazy because they don't have an alternative. 
So they came in and they put a group together. And the most successful thing they've ever done was done by Johns Hopkins two years ago, where they gave people a month of psilocybin and cognitive therapy. And of course, psilocybin is not a legal drug, but the bottom line was the results were unbelievable. 53% of the people uh, a month later had no symptoms of depression. Nothing like it in the history of psychiatry or psychological approaches. Uh, when they did our test, the numbers were so radical, they sent them out blind to two other organizations to be absolutely certain it was accurate. 100% of the people, not one person out of the group, still had depression 30 days later, and 19% of people had suicidal ideation, none had suicidal ideation. So this date with Destiny I just completed, they did a study for 754 people, it'll be the largest landmark study of, uh, ever done, but they really want to just show people what can really be done. And the answer to your question is, you know, the way you experience life, you don't experience life. You experience the life you focus on. And what you focus on is based on beliefs and values. Whatever you believe, you tend to see that. You know, if I said to your audience right now, close your eyes, um, before, before I close your eyes, look around the room and see everything that's brown, everything behind you, around you, clothing, anything on the walls, books, anything. And then say, close your eyes and tell me everything you saw that was red. People usually smile. They say a lot more brown than red. And I open their eyes and look for red. And guess what? They find plenty of red. Well, you get what you look for. So our beliefs, our values, our rules that determine whether we experience heaven or hell inside, they're all internal. So it's like we can't control the external world. We can influence it. We have total control of this internal world, but most of us don't know how. So over those six days, people change their beliefs. I don't tell them what to believe. They discover what's limiting them. They shift their values to what's more consistent with where they are. And instead of being pulled apart, like, you know, I want to make you know everybody happy and be honest simultaneously. I want to make a billion dollars and sleep till noon. Those create inner conflict. <laughs> we help people resolve the inner conflicts, create a compelling future and be in control of their own life. And you're right. A year later, they found 71% reduction in negative emotions, 52% uh, uh, improvement in, in positive emotions a year after doing this. So the long impact of this is what they're most impressed by. Talk to me about what causes depression, because I know I talk a lot about um, in my own work when people ask, you know, hey, I'm really struggling. What should I do? I actually would tell people cognitive behavioral therapy. If it's really stuck, then look at some of the research on psilocybin, which that's me grappling with, like, what is that really deep neurochemical entrenched pathways that people can get into with depression? And I've always been hesitant to, to cheapen the cause of depression by saying, oh, you just have to think better, have better beliefs, all that. But when I saw the results of the Date with Destiny research, it made me think maybe I'm making the problem harder than it really is. Is it, is it really that the, the entrenched depression is just the way that people think? Or is there something so real to trauma that it's sending you into a neurochemical cascade that you can't get out of in any simple way? Well, rather than me answer that question, the head of the NIDHD or however they pronounce it, uh, you know, for 22 years, I don't have it in front of me here. I wish I had and give you the exact quote. Maybe I can give it to you. You can post it afterwards if you'd like. But he said, you know, in 22 years, uh, I spent whatever it was, $20 billion. It's some of the most interesting studies in the world. And we didn't move, uh, you know, one person out of depression. The bottom line is, Biochemistry is part of it, but it is related to what we focus on and what we feel. I can change your biochemistry in a heartbeat, 
close your eyes and have you imagine one thing, I can disrupt you, put, produce fear, close your eyes, produce something else. We can produce a parasympathetic effect, a calming effect. So you cannot separate the mind and the body They're together. And so my approach is both. I think you know from going to events, I believe in physiology first, but it isn't just biochemical. It's the way you move. It's the way you breathe. It's the way you gesture. If I said to you, there's a depressed person behind curtain number one over here, and I'll give you a $100,000 donation to your favorite charity if you can describe their posture, Everyone knows. What's their posture like? Where, where's their head? Down. Down. Where's the shoulders? Slouch. Are they breathing full or shallow? Shallow. That's right. Are they talking loud or quiet? Soft. Fast or slow? Slow. How do you know? Because we've all practiced this shit at some point and been depressed, right? But if you take that same person, I don't care what's going on with them, and you put their shoulders back. I know this sounds absurd. And you have them breathe different, and they speak at a different tempo, and they move. Their biochemistry changes like that. So you got to shift the way the body's being used. But then also, you have to create a compelling future. This is the way I look at it. I look at it as five to thrive. Let me give you a little picture in your head. Think of a triangle, the first base of three things. The base of how you use your body affects your depression or your excitement. If someone's depressed or they're excited, they use the body differently. They breathe differently. They move differently. They speak differently. So you can make a biochemical change just by changing the body radically enough in the way you move. Second is what you focus on determines what you feel. So if you're supposed to meet your husband or wife at 7 p.m. for dinner and you get there and they're not there, boyfriend, girlfriend, whoever, what do you feel? Well, some people go, I'm angry. Some people go, I'm worried. Well, it's only seven, you know? Well, let's say it's 7.30 and they've not shown up. They've not called. They've not text. Well, now some people go, I'm really worried. I'm really pissed off. You know, it's 8.30 they haven't called. You know, I'm full, a woman tells me, right? I didn't wait for the bastard. But my point is, whether you're angry or whether you're worried, those are biochemical effects, but they're all based on what you focused on. If you were really angry, like they did it again. You know, they're probably screwing around with somebody else. If you imagine that in your mind, you're going to be upset. But if you're worried, you thought, what if they're in a car accident? And you're going to get a very different biochemical effect. But people have habits of what they focus on. And those habits become your biochemical habits as well. And so they reinforce each other. It's not a one-way street. So that's why, you know, I really believe exercise is one of the most important elements, pushing someone beyond their normal comfort zones physiologically while you're simultaneously are working on their head, creating something. So you need strong physiology, you need a really clear focus because you're only experiencing what you focus on. The human brain is a distortion, deletion, and generalization device. Your conscious mind can only handle so many things at once. You're not thinking about your clothing touching your skin or the, you know, the sound of your heartbeat till I mention it, or let's say the, you know, the sound of the, in your ear of being able to hear that heartbeat. All those things I have to call your attention to because your brain is deleting most of what's going on. So it's not overwhelmed consciously. So we pay attention to a small amount of things. So if you're really happy, you're deleting all the things that could piss you off or make you worried. If you're really worried, you're deleting all the things you could be grateful or happy about. So and we tend to generalize our lives because we're cognitive misers. We don't want to think things through. So if you have strong physiology, strong focus, then the third piece is meaning is what creates emotion. Like if somebody says something and you go, they're disrespecting me or they're challenging me or they're coaching me or they're loving me. Well, whichever word you select for those sensations in your body, your biochemistry becomes. And so, you know, somebody might say, oh, you know, this happened to me because God's punishing me or this happened to me because God's challenging me or this problem's here because it's a gift from God or someone else says it has nothing to do with God. It's the fact that I've been a lazy bastard, right? 
whatever it is you do in your head, there is a biochemical effect. So there's the body, there's the focus, and there's language. Those three shape how you feel moment to moment. If you're excited right now, using your body, your focus, and your language in a different way than if you're pissed off, than if you're worried, et cetera. But then what makes you use these three once you understand them is you need what's called a compelling future. You need something that gets you to move forward. And like, I feel so bad for the generation today, you know, Z generation millennials, because so many of them are now talking about not even having children because of the exaggeration of the problems. We've always had problems. I remember we were going to run out of oil where the, the ozone was going to be destroyed in the 1970s, the cover of Time magazine. We've always had these challenges and we've always learned to adapt to these challenges, whatever those challenges may be. But people today think these problems are forever because we've had some times here that we've never had where we literally shut down the whole world and had people trapped in their homes. And that has an effect on people because they don't have a compelling future. So you have to develop a compelling future. And what allows you to do that finally is what's under this triangle, if there's a circle, think of a compelling future and there's the power of identity. Identity is who are you beyond the problem? There's something inside you that's bigger than anything that's ever happened to you, that ever could happen to you. And tapping in and finding that part of yourself is how you get someone to have sustained strength. So they have a reason to do it, a compelling future, something they're going for. And it's got to be a compelling future about more than just getting by. That's not compelling or surviving or doing okay. You know, the secret to anyone who succeeded is they found something they care about more than themselves. Something that has meaning for them that they want to serve more than themselves. Because as human beings, if you get in your head, you're dead. Almost all of us can find something to be upset about. That's the nature of the mind. The mind is constantly dissecting things, separating, comparing. But when you look at back and you take a look at somebody's life and you look at the totalitarian aspect of what am I here to serve? What am I here to give? What am I being called to for life? Those are the people that, you know, were in concentration camps and survived. You know, if you read Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl, one of my favorite people on earth, right? This entire piece was they had a will to live because they had a compelling future. They said, I'm going to live so that I can tell this story so it'll never happen again. They suffered the most intense suffering, but they made it through it because they had a compelling future. So identity and compelling future are the ultimate things that shape people. And so what I do is I really help people discover those things. And I do it through immersion because a little step at a time is like trying to learn a foreign language. You know, most people took a language in high school and college and they can't speak it. But, you know, if I said I want to learn Italian and you have the money and time and I dumped you in Rome and said, I'll see you in 90 days, 90 days from now with no teacher, you'll speak fluently because you're in it, speaking it, breathing it. That's how we learn best. Not one word at a time. Or it's uh, cat. It's cat, cat, cat. It's cat. <laughs> right. So I see that with my daughter. So the same things with humans. So I do total immersion training. And, I, and, I, and I've learned over the years that people want a great education, but they want to be entertained first. We're, we're no longer an information society because information, there's too much, right? We're drowning in information. We're starving for wisdom. So what I've learned how to do is how to capture people's attention who wouldn't sit for a three-hour movie for 10, 11, 12 hours a day, now even at a distance, you know, because we have to do all these programs now live and in person. But we also do hybrid where people all over the world are participating, and we're doing 12 hours a day and they're out of their mind, entertained, emotion, juice, everything they want. They're getting the best education. And while they're doing it, while they're there, I have them do the things that produce the change. So when they leave, they've already made change. They already have momentum. And that kind of e-cubing is what I call it. Entertain them, educate them and empower them. That process I've kind of refined over the last 45 years. This is my, I'm about to end my 46 year doing this. I started when I was three, of course. Right. Standard. That's what I would have guessed. Yeah. So 
All right, talk to, there are people in my life that I love very much that I have repeated you back to them a thousand times and they still don't make that change. Yes. How do you, I actually heard you at one point say, look, effectively, I'm a filtering mechanism. I'm not worried about the people that aren't prepared to make that change. I want to find the people who are and give them the tools that they need. Is that, have I understood that correctly? Do you just sort of accept that some people are never going to do it? Or is it just immersion or whatever that is missing and you could get even those people to make a dramatic change yeah. if you can get them inside? It's the latter, right? No, you know, all I'm saying is I don't go running around, you know, imposing my view on everyone, right? Uh, when I was in my 20s, I'd be pull, I'd go to Denny's in the middle of the night to try to help somebody. I mean, these true stories. And I'd see some poor guy at the counter go, hey, listen, I got these tools. I can help you. I mean, that's how crazy I was. So I think you're probably referring to that. Like, no, if people raise their hand, I'm here. But I, but people drag people all the time or pull people who don't want to be there. And, you know, and they're going to be there for 12 hours in a day. And I address it right away. But usually within 20 or 30 minutes, people are so engaged that they're, they can't even believe it. They're enjoying it. It's not what they think. They think it's going to be, I don't know what they think. It's going to be sitting in a room, someone just talking at you. And that's not what this is. This is an experience. But yes, they need to have experiences. A belief is a poor substitute for an experience. So you can tell somebody something and they can nod their head and cognitively understand it. That's very different than the visceral experience of getting it in your body where it starts happening automatically. And just think of the learning process or even mastering. You know, you're, you're a person like myself. We're always looking to master different things. How do you master things? Well, first, first step is cognitive understanding, right? You understand how it works and that and $4 will get you a Starbucks, right? Because, you know, understanding doesn't do anything, but you have to get for, as a first step. And most people go, oh, I already know this. I know this because they understand it. If you're not doing it, you don't own it. You don't experience it. So the second step is enough repetition of what you understand with enough emotion. And we produce emotion using music and movement and everything else and asking questions and having people remember and closed eye processes. Because, you know, if I asked you, where were you on 9-11? Almost everyone on earth can tell you, even if they're not American, where they were when they first heard about the towers coming down, who was around them, what they saw. But if I asked you, where were you on 8-11? No one can tell you unless they had something really special happen that day, because information without emotion is barely retained. So when you're telling your friends, that's not going to do squat. They're going to nod their head, even if they understand and go, that's interesting. There isn't in the emotional shift because people only change in an altered state. You know, most people, you know, think, uh, you know, hypnosis is something that people do to them. Most people are living in a hypnotized state. You know, if you watch somebody, you were driving your car and then something catches your attention, you kind of focus on it for a while. And then all of a sudden you go, holy shit, who's been driving this car <laughs> for the last few minutes, right? Well, you were in a trance or you go to a, you know, to a hotel and somebody pushes the elevator and it's already lit up and they push the button. If I could get five bucks for every time this happened, right? They're just in a trance. They're just going through the automatic motions. For most people, about 48% of what they do, science says, every day is automated. So they're not really thinking clearly. They're not open to what's really possible. So we're doing is we break that up by doing something with such immersion. And so then the third step is you do it physically and then it gets in your body. So then it's like confidence is tying your shoes. Like, you know, I can get up and do 12, 15,000, 50,000. You know, these days we got a million people that did my last five day seminar, 1 million people, over a million people. Whoa. So it's like, it's like the size of the audience gets larger and larger and larger. And I've developed stronger and stronger skills to do it, but it's also getting it into people's bodies because like tying your shoes, you've done it so many times, you don't have to think about it. It happens. Well, I've done so many versions of things for 45 years that, you know, it's like when I go to have, you know, a challenge somebody's facing, I got 50 answers. 
and they're already in my body. I don't have to think it through and try to figure it out while they're wait, while I'm wasting their time. I can just deliver the result. But mm-hmm. that's what makes the master something. And so you need immersion. And so do you, uh, does it require hunger? Yes. But hunger can be awakened. Something you have no hunger, I have no interest. But then they see something that really excites them or they go through a painful enough moment or they get an environment where they see what's possible. And that's what happens in our environments. Okay, so let me run an idea by you. I, I will frequently get parents ask me who they just, their kids are really struggling. They don't know what to do. And um, I always give them, here's the backstop reality. If you absolutely must get a change in your child's behavior, I'm going to tell you what will work. You're probably not going to do it, but I am convinced it will work every time. Uh, you're going to have to kidnap them. You're going to take them somewhere remote and you're going to put them in a group of people in, in the company of a group of people that they respect. And to earn their respect, they're going to have to change their behaviors into what you want them to do. So assuming that you want them to do something that's actually good for them, uh, stop doing drugs, stop wasting time, living in fear, whatever. And you put them in that group and they're going to have to conform to the, the core values of that group, which you will have, you know, brought them together for that reason that they have positive, uplifting core values. But the key mechanism for me is that to gain acceptance from these people that are worthy of respect, they will have to conform. But I think they have to want their respect. Do you think there's any of that? Or en masse, can people do this in isolation? Well, of course people can do it in isolation. People do it all the time in isolation. Your strategy is a really good strategy. And, uh, you know, I have five kids and five grandkids. Um, My second youngest boy um, uh, had an experience where, when he was 16, he got caught up, you know, he went to school at uh, Le Rose in Switzerland, an amazing school. He wanted to go so badly. I had the contacts. I thought, man, if I could have done this, gone to school. His uh, roommate was the king of Oman's son who had at 16 years old or 15 years old, actually, they were 15 at the time. He already had 14 cars, every kind of Ferrari, everything you can imagine. He had a different Rolex or, you know, $50,000 watch each day. And so my son, who I said, you're going to work your ass off during the summer to help pay for this. Here's how it's going to work. My son then uh, kind of adapted to that environment. And unbeknownst to me, the woman in my life at that time gave him a credit card. And oh. at 15 years old, he spent over $100,000 competing with the Kings and Queens kids. And started doing drugs, you know, light drugs, you know, smoking dope and so forth, pot, Uh, gained over 100 pounds. And I I, when I first went to see him in Switzerland, they won't let you come for the first three months. They're very strict. They want the kids to adapt. And he gained like 25 pounds. And I pulled the counselor aside and said, listen, this isn't right. And he's like, no, this is initial transitions. We see this all the time. He's going to play rugby. He's going to lose weight. Well, over the next year and a half, he gained over 100 pounds. So. I got him out of the school. I brought him back to the U.S. And sure enough, within a very short time, I had to do an intervention on him. And because one of his friends told me what was really going on with him. And so I did the intervention. He's not my blood child. So he said, you know, I'm going to I'm going to call my real father who, you know, was a nice man who provided, you know, his physical sperm, but had not been around most of his life. I've been you know, I've been raising Josh at that point since he was five years old. Really painful situation, but if you're a father, you got to do whatever it takes. And so I knew what he needed was what you described. He needed an environment where he had to earn everything because, unfortunately, his mother and I were divided and she was giving everything on the side. So he had no sense of inner pride. It's like when people talk about self-esteem, I I hate the term. It's so overused. But self-esteem does not come from what other people say to you. 
Someone can tell you your whole life you're beautiful, you're strong, you're smart, and you cannot trust yourself or not think so. Someone can tell you you're a piece of crap and you go, I'll show you. And some part of you grows as a result. So it has nothing to do with people say to us. Self-esteem is earned by yourself for yourself. It comes from doing something that's incredibly difficult and no one else knows it. You know it. And that's why you have esteem for yourself. So you had none of that. If you want a fighting chance against the competition, you need to be using the best technology and platforms in the world like Shopify. For whatever and wherever you want to sell, from launching to going international, Shopify is the global commerce platform that will help you grow at every stage of your business. Shopify is your all-in-one platform to quickly and efficiently take your business to the next level. Now, I love everything about Shopify because it makes it so easy for you to start, run, and grow your business. It didn't used to be this easy. I'm telling you, back in the day, it was a lot harder. I'm so jealous. Shopify powers more than 10% of all U.S. e-commerce because businesses that want to grow quickly and efficiently choose Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash impact, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash impact now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash impact. If getting your hands dirty and taking good care of your car or cars is a passion of yours, then eBay Motors is here for the ride because I'm sure you remember when you first saw the potential in that beauty. And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly with ebay motors brake kits led headlights exhaust kits turbochargers bumpers whatever your baby needs ebay motors has it and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time or your money back plus at these prices you're burning rubber not cash keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply it's Tom Bilyeu here. And if you are addicted to the relentless pursuit of greatness, then I've got something special for you guys. The Motivation Daily Podcast by Motiversity. It's your daily fix of motivation, inspiration, and wisdom featuring the best speeches and speakers on the planet. We cover it all. Life, business, relationships, discipline, purpose, mental health, sports, studying, focus, you name it. With exclusive speeches from heavy hitters like Coach Payne, Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. So I got him in an environment and, you know, he said, you can't make me do anything. And, you know, he was 17, almost 16 at this point. And I said, you know, as long as I'm your father, I can make you do anything. And I put him in this environment where they took away everything, cut his hair, and he had earned it the right to use salt and pepper. He had to learn that he had to, he had to be responsible for things. It wasn't so much respect. It was pure punishment reward. You know, it's like real basic conditioning in the very beginning. Now, my son is a very smart kid. <laughs> He's an adult now. He's completely transformed. This is 20 years ago. But he manages to get the owner of this facility to say, I've run this for 20 years. I've never seen 
a faster turnaround than your son. He's obviously your son. He was applying all these tools. He's helping other kids. He's being amazing. And so normally they stay there for a year and he'd only been there two months. And of course I missed him. His mother's crying. And so we brought him back. And within a month he was doing drugs and, and stealing from us. So I put him back in the environment for a year. He lost 120 pounds. He's never gained it back. He developed a different set of value systems for himself. And Josh today, you know, 25 years later, I have two grandchildren from him. He's my partner in several businesses. We've taken from zero to $4 billion to give you an idea. I mean, and I couldn't be more close to him, but it was one of the more difficult times. So yes, sometimes you got to do an environmental change because the environment they're in reinforces the behavior they're in, the, the beliefs they're in, the way they live that they're in. And that's not an easy thing to do. But so what you're talking about is an extreme. A lot of people do it with things like uh, Outward Bound, right? It's a great piece. A lot of people take their kids who are, you know, wasting away and they put them in an environment where they're in, in, in nature and they can't survive without taking on the challenges and the people around them. And so that's another shaping device like that. So I'm a big believer in immersion where someone has to grow, where it's not a should grow, it's a have to grow. There's no choice. Because, you know, when I work with people, what I basically do, if you watch me, is I ask questions, I do different things, but I basically put the walls from on the side and behind them, come in and in and in, and there's only one way forward, and magically they move that direction. That's my job, right? So I know how to do that in lots of different ways that don't require me taking somebody off for, you know, a year and setting them aside. But uh, I just want to point out that in some cases with drug use and things of that nature, your approach would be a very good approach. It's not necessary. You could take somebody for a few days aside and put them in a new environment and have them completely rewire how they are. Because remember, everything is conditioning. So the habits you have, the way you think, the way you feel, the way you perceive life is conditioning. Any condition pattern can be changed with new conditioning. And it doesn't take as long if you know what you're doing. You know, they did research at UC Irvine years ago. And I don't support this research, but this is what they did. They take a monkey and they take down four of his fingers and then they just bend his finger manually 10,000 times. So if you do this right now, if the people at home say, if they say, well, your finger, how'd you do that? They go, I don't know, I just thought it. Well, well, when they untape the monkey's finger, guess what? He does this for no good reason. It's conditioned. Imagine every time you bend the finger, you're putting a thread of connection between neurons, nerve cells in the brain. It's not fancy. Just think of nerve cells. Do it again, two strings. 10,000 times, you're wired, right? Well, some people are going on the way to work every day and they get off on the same on-ramp and one day they're on the phone and they don't need to go that off-ramp and they get off on it automatically, right? They're like a monkey, they've been trained. But what UC Irvine found is they could interrupt this pattern and they could create a new pattern and it didn't take 10,000 bends to do it if they stimulated the pleasure center of the brain. If they stayed in the pleasure center while they bent the finger, they got like a hundred strings of connection. So two dozen of these produce what they used to get from 10,000. So I use that principle in what I do. That's why people enjoy it so much. It's not a pain-driven experience. It's a pleasure-driven experience. Because listen, your brain's going to avoid pain any way it can, and it's going to move towards pleasure. Well, if I can get you to link pleasure to what you need to do so it doesn't take willpower, because look, willpower never lasts. I got a lot of willpower. I know you do too, but there's a limit to willpower. There's no limit to when you link pleasure to something, how far your body, mind, and soul will push towards it. So it's really changing what you link pain and pleasure to that creates lasting change. All right, so talk to me about trauma. There, I've seen people in your own seminars that have been through things that are so traumatic, it's almost hard to believe that a human can put another human through something like that, but they do. 
How does somebody like that, who is going to have a very hardwired sense of their own identity, of that they're broken in some fundamental way, that there's no way beyond that identity, and that's creating what I call a frame of reference. So it's the distortion you were talking earlier about, we distort things, is creating that distorted funhouse mirror that they're viewing their world through. How do you, because I know somebody uh, that's been through something like that, when they hear all this, it just sounds too facile. It's, it's too easy. You're just making it sound so simple. Yeah. What's well, the process for overcoming that trauma? Well, first, people get vested in their trauma. People get vested in their pain. If you want to know the largest drug on the planet, it's not cocaine. It's not heroin. Uh, it's not pot. It's not, you know, some prescription drug. The biggest, you know, drug on the planet is problems. Because everyone has a deep fear. Everyone. And the deepest fears we have are two. One is that we're not enough. We're not smart enough, young enough, rich enough, pretty enough, funny enough, something enough. And if we're not enough, it digs the deepest fear we have, which is we won't be loved. And love is the oxygen of the soul. So, you know, a baby, is, if they're not physically, kinesthetically loved, they develop what's called failure to thrive syndrome. That's how desperate our nervous system is for love. So human beings when they think, oh, my God, if I fail at this, it'll look like I'm not enough and I won't be worthy of love. They tend to come up with a reason why that's either not their fault. It's something that was done to me. I've got ADHD. I was born with it. I was raped. I was whatever. And they might even tell the truth. Someone may have really raped. Them. It's a horrible situation. But other people have raped and they've gotten through it and they're on the other side of it. This person hasn't because it becomes their reason for not being where they want to be in their life. And so the bottom line is a mother can lose her daughter or son through a drunk driver and spend the rest of their life in pain. And another one creates mad mothers against drunk drivers and does something about it and feels a sense of freedom and a sense of serving that child and a sense of higher purpose in what they're doing. So it's not the problem. It's not the trauma. It's finding what they value more than the problem. And, and everyone has a place where there's something they value more than the trauma. Some people gather trauma because they realize I've been so traumatized loss of this child that my other child feels completely unloved. And they, they realize I'm losing that love. I'm losing that child if I don't get my shit together, right? They need a higher level of what's called leverage. Leverage is what makes change a must, not a should. As long as it's a should, you'll have your story. And your story could be a true story. And you'll tell your story and share your story with yourself or other people or both. And you stay stuck. But trauma is, you know, it is not, it's a bruise. It's not a tattoo, right? Any bruise can be healed, but not unless you're vested in healing it. And what a lot of people do, I, I remember when I was diagnosed with a tumor in my brain, I've seen this happen so much that I didn't tell anyone. I didn't even tell my spouse at the time, the first day I was trying to process it because I didn't want people to start treating me differently. And so the only person who knew for the first day or two was my assistant because she had talked to the doctor. So before I'd even been able to tell my spouse at the time, all of a sudden, you know, everyone treated me like I was indestructible. I taught people to do that. It's like, because I want to help everybody. So there was no no. It's like, I'll do whatever it takes, right? So it was, it was inhuman at the time. And suddenly my assistant starts saying, you know, we shouldn't book that right now. And we shouldn't do this right now. And I started getting love and attention and connection for having this problem. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I, I'm not, I'm not going to go down that slippery slope. But that takes a really conscious mind to do it. And, and lucky for me, I've had a chance to deal with millions of people. So I see these patterns all the time. But most people, their problem is their drug. 
It's the drug against the fear that I'm not enough and I won't be loved. Even if they go, no, it's me. I'm so messed up. What they're really saying is reassure me, love me. They're wanting that connection through their problem. So you got to decide there's something you value more than your problem. When you decide that, you can make it happen. But most people aren't going to do that unless they get in an environment where they see that happening. And, in, you know, in our environments, you know, I have a one of my nights a date with destiny is called, you know, suicide night. And it's not to be humorous. It's just in any room with several thousand people, in my case, five or 10,000 people, you know, there's always at least a dozen people that are suicidal. And I'm not going to have been doing it for, you know, 40 years. And, you know, it doesn't matter who it is. I did one through uh, through Zoom last year to give you an idea, which is a little scary because when they're in my presence, I know they're not going anywhere I can handle it. But in Zoom, they could just close the computer and then what the hell happens, right? If they got mm-hmm. freaked out in the middle. I have a partner in this process, Chloe Madonis, who's, you know, every five years, psychiatrists and psychologists around the world gather and pick the top 10 people representing their field. And for the last 30 years, she's been in the top 10. So she's made films of all my work. And now therapists get continuing education credits uh, to continue to certify themselves by studying these. So we're training people to do this. So it's not just happening in my seminars or date with destiny. I'm assuming this comes back to the triangle, but what are you looking for? Like, do you have to first understand the story that they're telling themselves to help them unwind that? Like when, when you're trying to dig into that, what are you looking for to leverage, to narrow the walls, to get them moving in a direction? I'm listening for something that they value more than their pain and, or I'm trying to dig to find where that is. But I first try to figure out, like, if you think of, we all have a life story, right? Some people's life is a warning. Some people's life is an example. If your life's a warning, it still can become an example if you're alive, right? You you have that choice. That's the greatest story of all time, the comeback story, right? So what I'm looking for is what's their story? And the story is driven by, number one, what's their desire? If you go to a movie, read a book, in the first few minutes, the main character, you'll discover what their desire is. Is it to merge with God? Is it to find a great relationship and have children? Is it to free themselves from being enslaved? Whatever it is, there's a driving desire. And then there's always, as soon as you have a desire, there's a problem because otherwise you'd have your desire. And the problem usually is character piece is missing within yourself. You're being selfish. You're not giving enough. You're not creative enough. You're not trusting enough, something enough. And then as you go through the story of a person's life, what happens is they come up with a plan and there's always, you know, (laughs) the phrase, you know, if you want to make God laugh, tell her your plans, right? You know? So it's like the plan doesn't work. You end up having battles and the battles invariably are, with external enemies, with intimate enemies, like who can hurt you more, the person you don't know or the person you love who seems to have betrayed you. And then there's the internal enemy, the conflicts within yourself. And as you fight through those battles, if you continue to grow, you come to a point where you have insights. You see what the real truth is. It isn't somebody else, it's me. This is what needs to shift. And if you see that and act on it, kind of jump through the opening, so to speak, then life's never the same again, or life is happily ever after, as it says in every story, right? Because you've made a shift in the core values and beliefs and emotions that are driving your life. So I look at it that way. I'm looking to see what's their story. And you want to change your life, change your story. Are they playing the position of the the pawn? Are they the position of the king? Are they court gesture, right? Are they the martyr? You know, what, what is the role they're playing? What's the story they're telling themselves? And then I dig for something they value more. So, for example, the woman that uh, was going to take her life and already given up all her stuff, um, in a few seconds of talking with her, she mentioned something about her father who had just died. 
And so I asked her a little bit about her father. Both her father and mother had just died. She'd gone through sexual abuse and her brothers and sisters didn't want to talk about it. And as a result, they were estranged from her. And so she felt she had no friends, no anything, suffering financially and in a lot of physical pain. So all these things happening once, people say, guess what? Dying would be easier than living, which is not true. But if you believe it, you try to take your life. So as I dug in about her father, he grew up in the Depression and he was extraordinary. And, and I could just see the respect and love for her father. So as I had her tell me stories, and I said, well, how did he do that during that time when he had no money and people were jumping out of buildings? And, and I and I go deeper and deeper. And it's like, well, he just valued this. And he was he learned from his father. And, you know, he he never forgot these certain core lessons. And, and I said, oh, I said, that's interesting. And I said, so and what core lessons did you get from your father? And gradually I started find where the resources were. Why is she not going to kill herself? Why? What's the leverage that I can use to get her to shift? And then you can watch this emotional transformation happen over about 45 minutes until it was so unbelievably emotional and complete. At the end, it's like, no, I'm never going to take my life. I can't take my life. I'm not taking my life. And she starts to rebuild things. So really fast, I want to, I want to push in on that. So was it that what you were uncovering is that through her dad, she could see meaningful values that she already resonated with. And then it was about getting her to transpose those values from your, you're putting them on your dad, but you can value those same things in yourself. Now you have a chance to live up to those values, which will help you change your story and your sense of identity. And that's going to give you the meaning and purpose to pull out. That's the intellectual description of it. The emotional description. <laughs> of it. Yeah. That, and which would not have moved her though. That's the mechanics. What moves her is I can't let my father down. Either that his father down the worst time, I can't let my father down. That's what I took her to, right? And then building a compelling future, what she can build, what she can do, what she does have the ability to make happen, what she has broken through, like tapping into the resources she deleted inside of herself and reactivating them so she feels alive again inside herself. Although all the other things you described are the structural intellectual impact of what actually happens, but that's not what changes somebody. It all comes from emotion. We are emotional creatures. We all study, like you're talking about it using your brain. You're such a smart person. I love you dearly. And you analyze it all. But your effing brain isn't going to do shit. What's going to do it is enough emotion. Emotion is the power. Emotion is what starts wars. It's what ends wars. Emotion is what gets you married. Emotion is where kids come from. Divorce is where emotion comes from. Everything that you can think of of a major change in humanity from the most extreme of war to the most gentle of love all come from human emotion. So it's the mix of emotion. It's like knowing what you want and having the right fuel to get there. And you have, if the fuel has no combustion, you're just bored, you're not going anywhere. If the fuel is total trauma and I'm overwhelmed, you just blow up and go nowhere. There's that delicate balance. And I've learned over the years how to help people find that balance. Okay, this is really interesting. And may you may have put your finger on the thing that I struggle with the most. The thing I find compelling is for sure... Um, being able to understand intellectually what's happening because I've used that to change my own life. That is the thing that works on me. Um, do you at all I, feel... I would, I would ask you to consider something. Please. What you just said is absolutely true. I know you really well. And you know how much I respect and love you personally. And what you've accomplished in your life is extraordinary. What you're continuing to accomplish is extraordinary. But there's an emotional inflection that made you use those things in those moments. It wasn't just those understandings. If the emotion made you find the answers, brother, 
And then you have a really smart mind. You found the answers, figure out how to use it. But there are inflection moments that made you do it. There's a reason why you left your company after building it to a billion dollars. It wasn't intellectual. It's emotions. So, but you have developed your mind so much. It's like your right arm, your bicep is really strong. Your left one, not quite as much. And I'm inviting you to consider that your left one is your more powerful one. And you've used it in key moments, but it also, it's very protected to use the mind because we're all afraid to feel a little too much. So the more I can understand it, I put it out here, I can analyze it. I don't have to be in it. But the truth is where you're going to, where your impact or your real, since impact theory, <laughs> where the real impact is, is when there's enough emotion that gets you to apply the things that you understand intellectually. Right? Or find the yeah. answer. You, you didn't even have the answers. You found the answers intellectually because the emotion drove you. So it's really studying what creates that emotion that makes the difference in anybody's life. That's where everything begins and ends is with emotion. And yet our society is all about up here. You know, in Chinese medicine, it's all about the heart, right? That's considered the center, right? In America, we think it's the brain. Now, you, you know, when you first are born, you know, your heart starts beating. That's how we know you're alive. And there is no brain yet. I mean, this literally is the initial sense of intelligence. That's why, you know, for thousands of years, even poets have talked about the power of the heart. Well, the heart has tremendous power and there's a biochemical connection between the brain and the heart that I know you know about. And learning how to use that is where you create more lasting change. When I was understanding it all, I was good. When I learned how to move people, I got great at what I was doing. Mm. Yeah, that that feels like a really important statement. And now I'll give you a little more insight into part of what riles me up. The reason that people in self-help fall into snake oil salesman territory is some people are very good at orchestrating emotion, but they don't actually know how to create lasting change in people. And so it's bullshit. And so many people get caught up in that part. Well, that's and just I like, watch. Like, that's like the pump up, right? It pumped up and then it drops, right? It's gone. Right. Yeah. So that that's my big fear. Not necessarily with myself. I'm pretty good at getting myself to do what is useful to me in terms of moving me towards fulfillment, just to put a really brief cap on it. Yeah. But I, what do you think about, in fact, I'll ask it another way. How have you avoided falling into the realm of bullshit because so many people that mimic you, they only exist in the realm of getting people to feel something emotional, but you don't. So you uncover this, okay, I'm going to make this about not letting your dad down, but the, a year later, and I'm just going back to the study now, a year later, people still have this lasting impact. So how and where are you translating it from the, all right, we're not going to let your dad down, and this is how we're going to do it? Because it's not enough. That's what, that provides the leverage, right? Now we've got to condition your nervous system to feel a different way in these contexts right now where you feel overwhelmed. And so I use emotion with precision. It's more like a laser. It's not a pump up. Uh, you know, people see a seminar with me and they see 10,000 people or 20,000 people in the stadium jumping. It's you all know it's not about jumping. It's using this scientifically to shift the biochemistry in that room. You know, the, the study they did at Stanford, they did, they, they followed me for three years and they put this $85,000 vice on me that measures everything, heart rate variability, everything you imagine. And then every hour they came and took my saliva and some blood to see how my biochemistry was changing. It was so radical because they found out I jump a thousand times in an average day on stage, a thousand times. And I weighed 285 pounds. So every time you come down, it's four times the body weight when you hit. So imagine a million pounds times a thousand jumps, you know, 
million pounds of pressure basically going to my body in just one day. Um, my lactic acid, if you're speaking with somebody and you're running and there's a point you can't talk anymore because your lactic acid at four, well, I'm at 18, I'm still speaking. But the most crazy thing that they discovered was that they started measuring my audience as well. And it's wild. It looks, I, I know you know about mirror neurons, right? You can watch somebody and then you start to experience in your body what they're doing. Well, I take an audience all over the world, including people that are home in their houses, right? Now that we do these things digitally, we'll have 25,000 people in an event. We might have 10,000 people in front of me, another, you know, 15,000 at home in 100 countries. And they went out and they did the same tests on them. And they literally mirror my biochemistry. And there's something that they found in studying guys like Tom Brady. And they, they studied the, um, the Stanley Cup champions of Tampa Bay um, uh, Lightning and so forth is when they get to a stressful point, they call it the championship biochemistry. There's a place where your testosterone surges. So you have this incredible drive, right? It also makes you retain whatever you're thinking about. Because with the testosterone, you remember it, right? Because it creates a biochemical shift. But also cortisol, which is the stress hormone, drops through the floor. That's why Tom Brady can have a minute left and do these unbelievable type comebacks. He is in this zone. Well, that's where I am. And I take people biochemically into this zone, and then I take them out deliberately to produce a little more fear, break it out. You know, I'm, I'm building muscles with them. And you literally see it looks like music to what's going on there. And then every single person that they tested goes through this biochemical change. So a year later, they didn't just have the leverage, oh, I'm doing this for my mom, or new values or new beliefs. They had the biochemistry that's wired into them that gives them strength under stress. And that's why they're doing well a year later when Stanford follow up, they're like, couldn't believe it. How could 11 months later have this continued to improve? Well, with new beliefs and new values, you're improving your life, but also because it was wired with so much emotion, you've had a biochemical shift as well. And so the combination is answers your original questions. I said, you can't separate the mind and the body. I do both. When somebody just pumps people up, you know, and copies what I do in terms of the surface, they don't know what they're doing on the deep part. And some people do the deep part, but they don't quite frankly get everybody because they don't produce the emotional change. So people leave intellectually understanding why they're messed up and they can explain it to you, but nothing changes. It's the combination of those that produces real lasting transformation. If you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation, and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right. Talk to me about values concretely. Is there a generic set of values that everyone should be uh, living their life against? Is it all super unique to the individual? And how do we go about creating and making those values stick? 
Great question. When I was like 35 years old, I, for about a year, I asked everybody anywhere I went, taxi driver, what's most important to you in life? What else is most important? Which that's how you find out what people value most, right? And I was looking for that ideal set of values. And if we could all do that, and it just shows, you know, my level of development at 35, right? Thinking we all have one set of values. At different stages of life, we need to value different things. There are different lessons. There are predictable things that happen from zero to 21, not identical for everyone, but there's certain things. You're accumulating knowledge and skill. You're, you know, if you're lucky, if someone's looking out for you, most people have someone looking out for them, at least for a period of that time. You go to 22 to 42, now you're testing what you were taught all the things you were taught to believe. And then you find out, shit, relationships are a little more complex than I thought when you get into a deep, intimate one, right? And then you discover, well, shit, I'm not invincible. And so 22 to 42, if you work at it, you're the soldier of society and you're learning and you're growing and you're testing and now you're developing who you are. 43 to 63, roughly, in 20-year segments, some people, you know, I went to work when I was 11 years old, right? So I didn't start at 21. But you get the idea, the overall phases of life. But 43, 63, that's your power period if you worked hard in the first two seasons. If you planted in the spring and you took care of things during the summer and kept growing, then it's fall for you. That's the time when you have the greatest reaping in terms of business success, in terms of life, in terms of wisdom, in terms of understanding, and you get better in your relationships and you stop judging yourself so insanely, hopefully. And then from 64 to 84 to 104 to the oldest living humans, you know, 120, that's a different period. That's a period in which if you've done well in the beginning, you get to be the elder of the tribe and you get to be in a place where you get to mentor people and you want to. And it's not about you anymore because you live enough life to know that that's an empty promise. You know, there's only so much feelings you can have for yourself, you know you know, buying things or music or drugs or sex or whatever, there's, you start to realize life has a higher and deeper purpose. And it's about something more than me. Life's not about me. It's about we. And when that starts to happen to people, if they're healthy, if they took care of themselves in those first three stages, it's the most fulfilling time of life. All the research shows most fulfilling if you're healthy. So it's, that's kind of the, the racetrack of life and in gross sense of things. And then there's every one of us goes to those stages and we have different life experiences, but we also are placed in a different place in history. So right now we're in winter. It's not hard to figure this out. If I asked you, you know, if you were born in 1910 and, you know, what, what, what's life like as you're coming of age at 21? Well, that's when, you know, 1929 is when the stock market crashed and people are jumping out of buildings. So these people that saw World War I end as children and we were the heroes and they saw all this new technology, radio and TVs and cars, thought they're going to party and right when they came of age, all hell broke loose for that 21 to 42. Because once the depression was done, then we went into World War II. But that, that particular generational location duplicates every 80 years. That's where millennials are right now in some Z generation. That generation, by the way, was not respected. They were called flappers. They were irresponsible. But when the environment changed, they grew. And they became known as the greatest generation. But think about it. They came home and had this time of prosperity, of peace. The late 40s, 50s, until Kennedy was shot in 63. Those are unique times. That's kind of springtime. It's easy to grow. Then there's the hot summer where there's fights within generations and values within the country. And that's, think about the 60s and 70s. And then the 80s, 90s, 2000s, very different than the 60s and 70s. So we're now in winter. Winter just means, it doesn't mean every day is a bad day. It just means the overall theme is fear. The overall theme is limitation. 
and people will get exhausted of it, just like they got exhausted of the 80s and the 90s of go, go, go. And it's all going to be me get rich. And it's all about me, 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 me. Now, those times are over. That gets exhausted. Winter, we're about halfway through it. If you study history, no one knows exactly when it is. The 20 year segments I'm giving you are generalizations, but we still got probably some war to deal with. That's usually what happens. There's economic war and then there's war that's seen on a, on a world stage. And so we see what's happening now in Russia, what's happening in China. It might be a different kind of war. It might be a war that's, you know, turning off your electricity. It might be a cyber war, but we're going to go through some difficult times. But on the other side of it is spring. So the beauty is, you know, some winters are long, some are short. Some are hard, some are easy, but you never skip winter. You don't go from fall and reaping straight to spring. But when you go through winter and get strong, now new springtime happens. If you do well in winter, if you take care of yourself and get strong, that's my goal to help people with right now. My goal is like, how do you help people right now? That's why, by the way, I'm doing the challenges that I'm doing now, because since COVID happened, people are stuck at home. I was like, how can I help a mass number of people? And I don't want money to be in the way. I don't want anything to be in the way. So I do a five-day challenge, about two, usually sometimes three hours a day. I tell them one and a half, two hours, but I, I want to give more. I charge nothing for it. And we have, in the last three years, a million people participate in each one of these things. And it's free. I'm just showing people what to do with their body, what to do with their mind, what to do with their emotion, what to do with their relationship, what to do with their business. Because winter is scary for most people with a career or business. You know, you see all the layoffs happening in the tech business. You see the challenges we've all gone through from COVID and now new challenges with inflation. All this is coming. So what are you going to do? Give up? Well, some people are going to hope. That's no strategy. Some are going to give up. Other people are going to retool themselves. And so that's my skill set. I'm made for winter. So that's why I'm doing these challenges. I'm doing this new challenge that I'm coming up here in January, here, January 24th through the 28th. There's no charge for it. It's not somewhat free. It's completely free. All people got to do is go to becomeunshakable.com, becomeunshakable.com and register yourself. And if you want, bring a friend or family. You can do it from your home and you'll be able to watch, participate and be, have the experience. And each day we're going to tackle these things. So that you become more unshakable. And what I mean by unshakable is it's not that nothing bothers you. It's just that when everybody else is freaking out, you have perspective. You know how to take advantage of the situation. You have a plan. You know what to do. Because financially, these times are the best times in the world to make money. You know, the Depression, more people became millionaires in the Depression than any time in history. You know, John F. Kennedy's father, Joe Kennedy, you know, he had $3 million in 1929. He had $62 million, the equivalent of $3 billion three years later. Because oh. when things are going rough, people give up and freak out and opportunity shows up for those that keep their heads straight. So whether it's your relationship or whether it's your body or whether it's your finances, I've spent a lifetime collecting the best strategies and tools. And so any of your listeners can join me. Just come join me on January 4th through 28th, but you got to get registered. So just go to becomeunshakable.com, get yourself registered, no charge, and I'll see you there. And we'll, we'll go deep on these things. So it's not intellectual discussion. We'll actually do it. No, I love that. And you're obviously everything you've put out has had a huge impact on my life. I want to go back to values as it relates to depression and changing where you're at in your life. So I have a thesis that I think um, may play into why you're focused on getting people to be unshakable, what that's all about. My thesis goes like this, that fulfillment is the ultimate game of life. Fulfillment has a uh, a recipe, and that recipe is that you need to do really hard things because 
Um, evolution demands it, quite frankly. So you have to do really hard things in order to make progress, which is something I've stolen directly from you, which is progress is a foundational pillar of human happiness, uh, which I think is so true. And so you're working really hard to gain a set of skills that is the sense of progress that allow you to serve not only yourself, but other people. And if you do that, then you get in a very virtuous cycle of gaining mastery at something. So you're getting better at something that's allowing you to serve other people. You're getting feedback from them that, whoa, you've made my life better, which then makes you want to work harder, gives you meaning and purpose. So when I think about values in that light, I think about things that need to be aligned with the reality of that formula, which I will say is a a gift or curse, depending on how you look at it, of evolution. And it just, it is the necessary thing for you to survive long enough to have kids that have kids. That's the, for a social creature anyway, that's the formula. And so when I think about unshakable, I think about it in that light of nature demands that you work hard at something, that you earn it, that it has been difficult, that you persevere and push through it, that the thing that you're pushing through and persevering is meant to allow you to transform potential into actual usable skill set. That's progress so that you can serve. Does that land for you or is there something that I'm missing? No, it absolutely lands. The the simple way I always describe it is there's two skills you got to master to have life on your terms, to have an extraordinary life. To me, an extraordinary life is life on your terms. It's not my life. It's what is it for you? For some people, that's, uh, you know, a white picket fence and three children. For some people, it's building a big business. For some people, it's being an author. It's like so many different things, poetry, music. So everybody's got to find it is what it is that they really love. But the skills you got to master to have life on your terms is one, the science of achievement. That's what you're describing. How do I take what I envision and make it real? And those are strategies and they are proven strategies. There are certain rules of the game. If you want to be healthy and you want a lot of energy, everyone's biochemically slightly different, but there's certain rules. If you violate them, you're going to have low energy and dis-ease. If you align with them, you're going to have enormous energy and strength. Same thing around finance. Anyone can grow financially, but most people don't learn the basic fundamentals. And so they're missing the strategy. So that's strategy driven. And I spent a good portion of my life teaching people that. But then the second part is what creates lasting fulfillment. And lasting fulfillment, as you said, I always say progress equals happiness. If we're not making progress, we're not happy. But it doesn't require progress every moment and noticing it either. That's another catch-all. That's my lifestyle and your lifestyle, right? Our lifestyle is the formula that you described. But the really ultimate formula besides progress is appreciation because you can make progress and then always have to make progress each moment to be happy. So we do need to grow. What you said is true fundamentally. Everything in the world grows or dies. Everything in the universe contributes or it's eventually eliminated uh, you know, by nature. So those aren't my laws. Those are the laws of nature. However, happiness only requires that you are grateful. If you've got a billion dollars and three beautiful children that love you and a beautiful husband or wife, but it doesn't matter what you have if you're not grateful, if you live in an emotional home, habitual pace of worry or frustration, your life's called worry and frustration. So it's you can be making progress and still be worried and frustrated. So it isn't quite just what you said. You have to also develop a new decision that says, I'm going to live a different life. I, I have a, a vision for my life spiritually. And that vision spiritually is I'm going to live in a beautiful state no matter what. That doesn't mean I'm never going to get upset or frustrated or pissed off. It just means I got a 90 second rule that I'm going to get out of that as fast as possible and solve it from a beautiful place so that I'm adding value to the people around me and myself. So my own biochemistry gets the benefit of that. And so that doesn't mean that you're always making progress. I love progress. I think progress equals happiness, but it isn't the only secret to that. 
It's really, can you train your brain to appreciate? Because in the middle of whatever you're pissed off about or frustrated or fearful about or worried about, you're deleting all the things you could be grateful for, you could appreciate that are absolutely real. And that's the problem with the mind. And, you know, I want your listeners or viewers to really think about this. You do not experience life. You experience the life you focus on. That's it. If you focus on what's wrong, what's wrong is always available. So is what's right. And so our focus produces our meanings and emotions, which produce the actions of our life. So it really starts with the patterns of your focus. Do you tend to focus on what you have or what's missing? Most achievers that are looking to make progress, I mean, I've dealt with millions of them over the years, as you all know, I'm one, you're one, right? Most achievers, that progress thing is really important. They're like, oh, we've got to have the next thing. And well, that's really wonderful, but it's only one way of doing things. And so it's like saying to yourself, wait a second, I'm going to, regardless whether there's progress or not, I'm going to find the good in this. I'm going to find the great in this. And what that does is it produces a different fuel to live your life from. And from that fuel, it's easy to make progress. You know, I used to tell myself, I got really pissed off. My brain gets really sharp and fast and figures the answers. Well, that's true. But when I'm really in a great state, my brain is fast and quick and I enjoy it and people around me enjoy it. So it's also deciding how you're going to be, not just what you're going to do. And I think the combination of those is where the quality of life that people are really looking for shows up. Now, what if people understand that they live that way for months, year plus, whatever, something happens and they slide back. I get asked that a lot. I, you know, I'm sliding back. I get stuck. I keep returning here. Is there an insight that they're missing, a key emotion, a value? What, what is it that they need to address to make sure that they don't backslide constantly? Well, uh, I'll give you a formula. If you want to know what makes people happy at the most basic level, when your life conditions match your blueprint. When your life conditions are what you're expecting, not your ultimate dream, but when you meet your basic expectations, you're happy. If your life conditions are better than you expected, you're over the moon. If your life conditions don't match your blueprint, your expectations, you have pain. If your life conditions don't match your blueprint and you believe I'm unable to change it, it's something wrong with me or it's a permanent problem or it's pervasive or it's personal, you know, you get into learned helplessness, then you're going to suffer. And so nothing is permanent, not even the body is permanent. Certainly no problem is permanent. Your soul might be the only thing that might be permanent, right? So it's really helping people to understand that when the life conditions change, your blueprint has to change with it. Either like if you're not happy, you either have to change your life or change your blueprint, your expectations. Usually it requires a combination of those two. So often what you say people is sliding is their life conditions changed. And then what they were doing wasn't enough to make them feel the way they wanted to feel. And so then they adapted to an old style of coping. They went back to smoking or drinking or eating or yelling at people or whatever the pattern may be. But that's because they didn't continue to grow. And so that's why it's not a static thing with me. I teach people not just, okay, you're going to make these changes in your values. It's like, you got to look as your life conditions change. You're going to make that happen. As you hit different stages of life, you're going to have to make those decisions. And people don't, everybody wants their life to be better, but no one wants to change, right? So we have to keep changing as the life conditions change. We got to update our blueprint, our values, our beliefs, our rules about how to play the game. And we have to update our behaviors to adapt to where the environment is. If you don't do that, you're in trouble. There are many people during COVID who it was the most horrific experience. There are many people that learned to use COVID, not let COVID use them. They grew their businesses. They expanded their mind. They shifted their emotions. They did things they never would have done. Other people gained 20 pounds. 
right? So it's all a matter of do you adapt to the life conditions and do you learn how to learn? Because this isn't a one-time thing. Oh, I did this thing. I went and worked out for a weekend. Now I'm pumped. Well, great. How long is that going to last? You're going to have to continue to use that and have a daily practice. Otherwise, you, of course, go back. And that's the biggest missing thing. I teach people daily practices that can take what they've learned and make it ongoing in their life as opposed to, wow, I had this great weekend. Yeah, I was going to ask if discipline is a part of that. I know you start every day with the cold plunge, which is I did that for 13 months. It is deeply unpleasant. Uh, how much of what you teach people to do is discipline? Well, uh, discipline, you, you know, you got to discipline your disappointment for starters, right? Because everyone's going to get disappointed. You're going to let it destroy you or you're going to let it drive you, right? So, yes, there is a certain amount of discipline, but it's less discipline than changing association. The fact that you quit after 13 months, I can tell you why you did it. You didn't focus on how you felt when you got out of the water. You focused on what it was like getting in it. Because when you're getting out of the water, it feels like a trillion dollars. Getting in it, there's never a day I ever look forward to getting in that freaking water, right? But I don't negotiate with myself. I don't go, okay, when I get ready, oh, one, two, three, or in five minutes. No, it's I say go, we go. Now, you can call that discipline. What it really is is just a habit. So I've trained my my will that says, when I say we go, we go. And then I focus on what it feels like getting out of the water, which is unbelievable. You feel so alive. You focused more on what it was like getting in. That's why you stopped. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't have stopped because it may not be the right thing for you. There's a million ways to do whatever you're going to do with yourself. This, this is only one simple way. I happen to like it because I focus on the feeling afterwards. If I focused on the feeling before, I wouldn't do it. And by the oh, way, I that's- love it. Most that's true of most things. And by the way, God takes care of that. Like ever seen a, a mother go through a horrific birth and then, you know, six weeks later, she wants to have another baby, right? She's still suffering. That's the power of God and the human mind for our species. We can get beyond any pain that we've been through. If there's something we want to serve more than ourselves. Facts. Dude, I cherish every moment we get to spend together. Where can people take the challenge and uh, spend more time with you? Yeah, it's January 24th, 28th, but get yourself registered right away and you'll get an email confirming you. It's 2 p.m. in the afternoon Eastern, but it's being done all over the world in every country. And you go to becomeunshakable.com, becomeunshakable, U-N-S-H-A-K-E-A-B-L-E.com. I love it. All right, guys, speaking of things that will make you unshakable, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Peace.